Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are talking about risk and perhaps more importantly, risk management. All investments contain a level of risk, but what can you do to mitigate it to make sure that you can sleep at night and ultimately build the financial future that you truly deserve? As always, take plenty of notes, but most importantly, make sure you take plenty of action. See you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Renshaw. Thank you for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. Always a pleasure to be here, but might not be yours today because we're going to be talking about something that you openly hate, and that is the notion of risk. It's a four-letter word, that's for sure. And yes, I think my uh, my take on risk is is well documented. It's not something I'm a fan of. Which, you know, a lot of people when they realise you're in the trading space think, well, if what are you doing that for if you don't like risk? So we'll talk about how uh, through learning the right skills you can help offset, lay off, and mitigate risk, and, and make sure that you're well insulated when things don't go quite according to plan. Which, unfortunately, in life is something that can happen quite frequently. That's right, it's never smooth sailing and with any investment there is for the most part always a risk that needs to be factored in. So a critical component of any investor's long-term plan. Too true. And I mean, I always say to people, you know, it's not about what you make, it's what you get to keep. And in order to keep it, you've got to have diligent, professional, consistent, and most importantly, easy to apply risk management. Got you. So what do you think about this statement straight off the bat is the biggest risk is the risk that you're unaware of. I couldn't agree with that more. It's so, so uh, important. And it's always the thing out of left field that unsettles people. Uh, And there are things that you can plan for, and we'll certainly talk about some of those in this podcast. And then there are things that come out of the left of center that you weren't expecting. Uh, But yeah, the biggest risk of all is the one that you, in some instances, were totally unaware of. And over the many, many years I've been in this space, you know, recall at live events and things like that, people come up to, you know, a chat at the end of it and, oh, I tried investing 20 years ago and I didn't know this could happen and that happened and blah, blah, blah. And it's and it's all stuff that they're just totally naive to. And it's not necessarily any thought, uh, you know, it's not their fault. Um, it's just a lack of financial literacy, which is what drives us to be at the vanguard as we are, teaching people and helping them improve their financial literacy so they can make better quality decisions. Absolutely. Let's, let's dive into it. Let's dive into it with a common myth. Now, mm-hmm. any investors looking for a return, most people think that, and this is a myth we can chat about, that the return and risk relationship is linear. Is that necessarily the case? No, it's not. And, and, and you're right. It's, it's such a misbelief that people hold. In order to make more return, you need to take on more risk. And that just simply is not always true. Can be sometimes, but it is not always true. And I'll give you a very, very simple example of this in the stock market. So, and and, and the, the performance and the message I'm sharing with you here is directly taken from the webpage of the ASX. So it's not my opinion, this is coming from the epicenter of the Australian stock market, the ASX. So if we take a look at the performance of the ASX 200, the top 200 companies here in Australia, the big 200, your BHPs, your Commonwealth, WiseTax, the big guys that are out there, and look at the performance of that market, and then have a look at the performance of that strategy, you, or rather that market using a slightly better strategy, the one that we teach, something called cash flow on demand. Over that 20-year period, you can see very, very strongly that the buy right index, the cash flow on demand index, outperforms the ASX 200 massively. I've seen that graph too of returns. It's quite staggering. The biggest thing that jumped out at me, AB, is not only was there an outperformance in returns, 
When the market had a drawdown, it was most always larger than that of the drawdown yeah. we saw on the cash flow on demand index. That's the right. Strategy. So in the good times, it's helping you make money, and in the bad times, you're giving less away. So what we have there is a strategy that over time outperforms and therefore gives you a higher level of return. Now, if you look at that same strategy as it's described by the ASX, it's actually described and defined as a lower risk strategy than simply owning shares. So what we've done is got a strategy that gives us a better return over a 20-year time frame and is less risky than owning shares, according to the ASX. So this whole myth of you have to take on more risk to generate more return is a misbelief. Assuming you've done your homework on the strategy and you're applying it in the right way, that's not true for all investments. There are some crazy things that you can do that have the capacity to give you massive returns, but alongside a, a fairly unpleasant poison chalice that can come with it on the other side. So I picked that strategy. It's why it's one of our flagship strategies, because it does both things. It makes a better return and it has less risk. It ticks a massive box for most people. And I'm sure there are other strategies out there in the investment landscape that, that probably achieve the same. Look, it's, it's crucial to be educated. That's the most important thing, and I'm sure that'll come through loud and clear uh, with our conversation today. Beauty. Well, one thing we did sort of touch on briefly, AB, at the start was the notion of expected versus unexpected risks. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about what that might look like if you're an investor. How do you weigh up the two? Okay. I always take the, the, the view, and I share this a lot with our clients in training, um, expect the worst and, I beg your pardon, prepare for the worst and expect the best. <laughs> Get that the right way around. Yeah, it's a big risk if you get that wrong. Yeah. So, you know, you know pr pr prepare for the worst, expect the best. The ball is going to drop somewhere in between those two marker points. And that's something that's absolutely crucial to understand. So the reason I say that is that if something happens, you're prepared for it. And there are things that come along that you can expect to be a risk as an investor. And every now and then there's something that comes out of left field. Uh, and the technical name for it is called a force majeure. If force you majeure. Want. Force majeure. It's Ooh, something is that that's, French? It is. And it's just like a, a, something that's an impact that was totally unexpected, which is really, really significant. They're very, very hard to prepare for. So if we go through the list of things that are expected and talk about some of the ways that perhaps you can uh, at least be prepped for them so that you're on the front foot should they happen. All right, so let's start off with maybe just the performance of an asset. It's not always going to be smooth sailing, right? Sadly not. And, you know, with the best will in the world, you can do research on any kind of asset class, whether it be property, whether it be shares, whether it's managed funds, bonds, whatever it may be. And unfortunately, that asset just simply doesn't perform. If you're looking at a blue chip investment in the Australian stock market, probably the best example for this would be something like AMP, which has been a perennial underperformer for the best part of 30 years. Now, the the reality of that, you could have done your homework, it's a blue chip share, you think it's in financial services, which typically you'd expect to do quite well, but through decades of mismanagement and poor corporate governance, it's just continued to underperform the market. So you may have invested in shares and in a blue chip share in maybe the right sector, but you pick, you pick the wrong stock. It's just been a, 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 a dog with fleas, if we can use that term. So there's always a risk that the asset can underperform. Equally, if you were to look at the property market, for example, uh, and, and let's say, and I actually had this happen, one of my clients a number of years ago, he and his brother through their family trust had uh, bought a couple of investment properties in Port Hedland. The reason for it, um, very expensive at the time in the mining boom, but the, the, the income was absolutely astronomical. Shortage of accommodation in Port Hedland. So they ended up buying a couple of literally 
fibro shacks up there, 1.2 million a pop, uh, that were renting out for literally multiple thousands of dollars a week, uh, just because of where the market forces were. Then of course, things slowed down uh, and those properties became worth, you know, three to $400,000. So, you know, you've looked at the income and the yield perspective on that and thinking, well, you know, that's a great investment. It's cash flow positive. Let's, let's have a, a red hot crack at it. But when circumstances in the economy and particularly in that case, the mining sector changed, that asset underperformed and, and you're left in a, in a pretty unpleasant uh, situation. Could be, you know, could be investing through a property trust is another way, uh, you know, when markets are good, it's great, the yield's there, but when things is high vacancies, like during COVID, those assets, for example, uh, typically don't perform. So there's the risk of actually picking the wrong horse in the race. Got you. Slight change of pace, one that we're all acutely aware of at the moment because it's, you know, forefront of every investor's mind is the notion of inflation. Mm. Uh, we go through those periods where inflation is contained, but more recently it's been a known quantity that it's out of control. Mm. How does that factor into your risk analysis on an, 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 any investment? Good question. And, and, and like inflation in fact, it impacts negatively on different types of assets in different ways. So probably the worst kind of asset during times of higher inflation is actually fixed interest. So you're tied in and locked into a particular return on your money over a given period of time, hence why it's called fixed interest. And if inflation starts to creep up, well, the return is fixed. And so your real return after after you take into account the inflation rate starts to diminish. So you know, let's say you know, uh, maybe 18 months ago, you might have been in a, a, a three-year or a five-year bond that was paying 3.5%. Well, with interest rates, and I'm sure we'll talk about interest rates shortly, being very low and inflation low, um, 3.5% is quite a nice return on your money. But with inflation at 7%, effectively, you're making a net real loss each year of 3.5% on your cash. So all of a sudden, inflation has impacted on that asset um, very dramatically. Typically, during times of inflation, real assets, shares, uh, property tend to do quite well because inflation usually comes around with a stronger economy, and with a stronger economy, um, those assets typically typically outperform. Uh, and if you look historically, gold has been quite a good place to go during times of inflation, probably less so uh, over the last few years. That disconnect has continued. Um, and when you look at stocks in the stock market, for example, uh, there are certain types of companies that will struggle and there are others that will do quite well. The kind of companies that will do quite well are those that have got the ability to pass on uh, price increases very, very easily. Toll road operators are a classic example of that where we just increase tolls by CPI every year, so we're guaranteed to be hedged out of any inflation risk on the return for our investor. Um, they never reduce their tolls, they just go up not. as inflation happens. So yeah, there's an example of you know, an insulated play versus inflation, whereas yeah, some, some asset classes really struggle under that. Well, speaking of inflation, uh, once again, acutely aware of the fact at the moment that interest rates are going up in order to curb inflation. Yep. So if you're a property investor, for example, let's say you've bought in the last two or three years and you're coming off the fixed rate or you were in a fairly low variable rate. You know, for example, my variable rate used to start with a three. It definitely doesn't start with that at the moment. Mm. How do you then factor that into your plan as an investor buying property, for example? It does become quite challenging. Uh, and what we're talking about here in terms of interest rate is a, is a good benchmark, not just for property, but any kind of asset. Because if you think about the cost of borrowing, that's the cost of capital. And so as an investor, you've got to look at the return you're making on that asset uh, that you've used the borrowed funding to purchase, for example, has to be way more than what the cost of borrowing that money actually is. Um, and yeah, property has been very difficult for people because it's been compounded by the fact that number one, yes, we've seen interest rate rises. Uh, and number two, um, that movement from fixed rates that were maybe at artificially low levels 
uh, onto uh, a, a variable rate that perhaps is a little less palatable for investors. So there's two ways of looking at this. If the property is your primary place of residence, well, you kind of got to suck it up. It's it's what it is. You can put money in an offset account, for example, to try and get your mortgage chipped away more quickly. Uh, we've talked about debt recycling, which is another strategy that you can use to try and get that that non-tax deductible debt reduced quite quickly. On the other side of the coin, um, if you're in a situation where your interest rates have moved up and it's an investment property, well, your tax deductions have also increased markedly there. So technically you're net, netted out of any risk of higher interest rates. It's just about being smart and structuring that, it's right? It's about structuring, which, which yeah, is, we'll talk is, about. is the epicenter of really any successful investment strategy is to make sure not only the investment's good, but your structuring is enabling you to optimize what you're doing. Got you. Just tying back to when you mentioned the performance of an asset, AB, just want to touch a little bit more on volatility because right now we're in fairly volatile times across the board. How do you actually factor in and account for volatility when you're looking at buying an asset, for example? I think in the case of the stock market, it's actually surprisingly easy if you've got the right skills, knowledge, education, which again is why we teach this stuff. So we very specifically look at things like the volatility or the implied volatility on stocks to get a gauge for how they traditionally behave uh, versus how they can behave when there are times of crisis. So if we were to take banks as an example, ordinarily they're pretty straightforward business. Uh, The benefit of what we've got here in Australia, of course, is a retail banking system that's not merged and joined at the hip with investment banking, which is unfortunately uh, the case in the US. And when you look at that, you think, well, okay, banks typically, they print money, they make their money on the margin between their cost of borrowing and what they charge you. And it's a relatively straightforward business, maybe some bad debt provisioning when things cut up a bit rough, but typically they print money most of the time. Um, But then something might happen that's a shock to the banking sector, which is something that's sort of plagued the headlines over the last few weeks. And you see the volatility of those stocks go through the roof. And it's an easy one not to be prepared for because it's typically a stock that's quite slow moving and just grinds along and all of a sudden it's got that ability to really be quite racy, typically to the downside. So looking back historically to see, well, in the darkest of times, let's talk about you know the pandemic sell-off in markets in February 20, or let's look at the most recent sell-off in banking, or look at the GFC. How did that stock perform then? Remember, I said you know you know expect the best, prepare for the worst. This is the preparing for the worst, trying to see what can happen to those stocks uh, over that time of, of of tremendous challenge, so that when it happens, it's not a shock to you and you panic. And that's the key thing is to be able to eliminate panicking from the equation. So understand the volatility of what you're trading. That said, there are certain types of stocks that are typically always volatile. Uh, and, and so, you know, you need to have a particular risk appetite to want to be trading those kinds of stocks. In the first instance, semiconductors is probably, you know, one of the better examples of that, which is typically a very, very volatile space. And so they're normally volatile anyway. And then when there's real choppiness in markets, they're extremely volatile. Not a place to go if you're someone that wants peace of mind uh, and a nice steady as you go portfolio. But if you're someone that's looking for aggressive growth, then you're playing in the right part of the market. So it's a question of choosing what's right for you based on its history and how it responds to crisis in particular. Not to mention this might be a little bit more complex for our listeners out there, but even playing volatility is a strategy that we've employed plenty of times. Once again, the message is clear. 
educated and having the skill set to do that, right? 100%. And trading volatility, uh, there's an index, it's called the misery index, the VIX index, and, uh, and it is a measure of volatility across markets where traders expect things to be troublesome and, and things are priced accordingly. So you can actually just trade that. So during times of crisis, that might be somewhere to go play. A bit more of an advanced skill, as I say, and as you rightly say, it requires a level of education in order to go there. All right, well, moving down the list, AB, in the mental list I've got, what about liquidity when in an asset? This might pertain to buying and selling shares or buying and selling a house, for example. Look, liquidity is that ability to very easily transact in that asset. It's another, uh, to, to move away from the jargon of the term liquidity, it's just an idea of the, the number of buyers and sellers that are available for that asset. Typically, if we're looking at, say, blue chip stocks, uh, they are very liquid. They're always buyers and sellers in the order of millions and millions of shares per day. Um, if you start to move out of the bigger companies and into the more speculative area of the market, then liquidity can be a risk. Uh, and I've seen this, you know, countless times. If you go back, you know, spec warrants, which were very trendy, you know, a number of years ago, and now there's no one playing in that space. So if you own a spec warrant, trying to find somebody to trade with is very, very difficult. Whereas, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, there were people lined up around the block. Um, equally. And it's not just in stocks. And stocks are very easy to measure the liquidity because you can see the liquid, uh, the, the traded volume every single day. It's a very transparent business. Property can be a real challenge. And, and people often don't consider that when it comes to um, you know, the ability to easily transact. Very easy to buy into something, but when you want to get out of it, it's usually because you need to get out of it either in a hurry or your view on the market has shifted and it's time to exit it. And so, you know, when we talk about liquidity in a property, imagine trying to sell your place and you've got an auction and there's one person that's registered as a bidder standing on your front lawn. You know, it's not going to go for a great price. You need that healthy competition of buyers and sellers. So in a property transaction, you know, having something that appeals to a broader market is probably better than having something that's a unique estate. You know, you try and sell something that's got certain characteristics, whether that be, you know, a price point that's way outside of the normal distribution or some certain attributes um, that make it not appealing to that many people, um, you know, either through its geographic location or the maintenance requirements on it or whatever it may be. You want something that's meat and potatoes. That's where the liquidity is in property. And equally, you know, if I go back to, say, the GFC, if you look at the number of mortgage funds, that was a time when interest rates were relatively low. A lot of people that were retired were looking for returns on their money that was a little bit higher, so they were investing in, in typically mortgage funds. And when the GFC happened, a lot of those people wanted to withdraw their cash. They couldn't because the assets being held were actually fairly illiquid and they were stuck in them in some instances into insolvency for some of those companies. So making sure what you're trading is got plenty of buyers and sellers, not in the good times, but in the bad times is how you make sure you don't fall into a liquidity problem. Absolutely. The skill set necessary to know and understand that too, which we keep coming back to. What about counterparty risk, AB? Yep. Do your due diligence. Who's the other side? And, you know, I see people, for example, that go out there and they look for equity partners in a property development. I've been down this pathway. It's cost me several hundred thousand dollars as my learning journey into that, um, where you really do need to know who your partner is. I thought I knew who mine was pretty well and uh, ended up costing me you know, several hundred thousand dollars. I think he's living up in Bali now. I hope he's listening to the podcast and feeling sufficiently uh, guilty uh, about the whole thing too. But you know, the reality is you've got to do your due diligence on, on people if you're doing business with them. So in the case of the stock market, make sure they're licensed, they've got an AFSL, they're type tight operation, they've been around for a while, et cetera, et cetera, in property or property development, making sure who you think you're doing business with is actually who it is. Oftentimes, uh, companies have a web of structures and you think, oh, I'm doing business with XYZ, they're a really big company. But when you actually look at the contract, it's like XYZ 
account number nine, um, which is a different proprietary limited, which is a different part of the company, which is probably a dollar company that you've got basically you know, no assets in. And, and if something goes wrong, they just cut that loose and run it into administration. And that's the end of your claim against that business. So you gotta be very careful. Tough game for sure. Especially, especially if you're in the lending space, know who, who the other side is for sure. What about this one? I mean, this is a fairly simple one compared to some that we've just spoken of. What about the time frame risk, being an investment longer or shorter than what you expected? Oh, gee, that's 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 a great one. And you know, if I sort of look at our financial planning business, it's one of the biggest challenges for people is making sure that the investments they have actually um, they match the time frame of what their expectations are. So, if you if you want to be drawing on the investment in five years' time because you've got a shift in life. So let's say, for example, that's where you're transitioning into retirement or or maybe you want to use that as that cash from that as an opportunity to pay your debt down before you retire, retire your debt, then you retire. Um, but the maturity of that asset is in 10 years time. Well, you can't get access to the funds. So you, you, you've got your dough tied up in something where you can't effectively access it without paying a break fee, which is usually pretty expensive uh, and all the misery that goes alongside that. So trying to match the time frame of the asset or the trade that you're doing versus your need for that capital is very, very important. So if you're in a fixed term type relationship with your investments, whether it's something as simple as a term deposit or whether it's something that's more sophisticated, that's a, a five year type product, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's really important. And I've seen this really come a cropper particularly with capital guaranteed products. You know, and in times of crisis, capital guaranteed is, oh, what's that? That sounds interesting. That's the sort of thing I'm looking for. Typically, when you go through the product disclosure statement, the PDS as it's known, uh, in those kinds of instruments, they are capital guaranteed at maturity, not if you redeem early. So you know, let's say this investment runs for five years, it's capital guaranteed at the end of it. So if you put a hundred grand in, you get a hundred grand out. That's your worst case scenario. But if you want to exit early and the, 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 there's some volatility and the price is lower, you're not capital guaranteed when you get out early, you get out at the market price, which is typically horrific, which is why you want to exit it in the first place. Sure. So yeah, I've seen people fall foul of that one a few times. So, you know, they've been in a fixed term uh, or capital guaranteed investment. Changes in their circumstances has meant that they've needed to access the funding and, and they've worn a fairly substantial loss on something they were led to believe is a capital guaranteed product. Gotcha. It is, but you've got to read the contract. Challenging landscape to say the least, and I think we've covered off a lot of risks there mm. that investors face day in, day out. So let's talk a little bit about now actually managing that risk, AB. Mm. If I come back to our bread and butter from a practical perspective, what about on stocks? So mm. any investor out there in the stock market, what's some ways to manage that risk? Look, in no particular order, and part of the reason why I love the stock market is that there are so many different ways that you can manage risk. Obviously, your fundamental and technical analysis to choose the right kind of asset in the first instance is is is, is absolutely imperative, and that's a non-negotiable. Equally, is liquidity, making sure it's something that's easy to transact in. You know, and again, if you're working in big blue chip liquid shares or exchange traded funds, that's typically typically pretty good. As a first level of risk management, uh, diversification uh, hugely important. Don't have all your eggs. In one basket, spread it out across, you know, not too many positions, but you know, not four, four banks, but maybe a couple of banks, a couple of stocks, or or better yet, an exchange traded fund, which is you know, nice basically one. the index. Second to that, having a stop loss in play. A stop loss in its most simple term, let's say you bought into a stock for nine dollars and forty, and you set yourself a level based on the patterns in the chart and, and the maths behind it, and say, look, we're into this for 940. If there's a breakdown in the share price, if things start going wrong, 
well, number one, we're wrong. Do you want to hold something that you're wrong about? Probably not. And you've got to try and push your ego to the side here and go, look, what makes sense for my account is to close this, not not hold on and go down with the ship. Um, so if it hits, say, $8.89, that's my exit level. And as soon as it hits that, I'm out. I'm not going to think about what I'm going to do. I'm just exiting at $8.89 if it hits that price level. All of a sudden, your risk on that trade is contained to $0.51, cents, uh, which you know, on that particular example is about 5%. Um, you're not going to go to the poorhouse losing 5%, and that's something to be really, really minded of. So a stop loss is crucial. And just to, just to sort of dive into that, I mean, that's what we talk about, having a plan and it not being unexpected. Mm. If you've got a stop loss there, you know what, if the stock trends down and you get out, well, that's what you expected your risk to be. Exactly right. You're preparing for the worst, and, and, and you've got the tools in play to do that. Um, equally, if you wanted to take a, a notch up the ladder in terms of sophistication and adding a guarantee because a stop isn't guaranteed, um, is through using things like put options uh, and uh, and protecting uh, effectively using them as an insurance policy to protect the value of your portfolio and I can't stress how important that is to do if you're using say an investment loan or borrowed money in any way shape or form to protect that capital should things cut up you know at the end of the day the the, the message is pretty simple like particularly with the stock market if the market drops 20 or 30 percent that's not the time to learn what do i do don't go to sari siri or, or or google and go what to do if the share market drops 30 percent it's too late you've got to be on the front foot with this and prepare for it it's kind of like buying you know uh, house uh, con- housing contents insurance when your house is already on fire it's not going to work sure so you've got to be on the front foot with this and again i can't advocate how important it is for people out there to learn the skills and the rules of the game that they're playing, whether it be in the property market, which we'll talk about in a moment, or whether it's in the stock market as we have with things like stop losses, diversification, and of course, using puts to protect your portfolio. Let's talk about property. Both you and I are property investors. Mm. How do you manage risk uh, in one of arguably the most popular forms of investment in Australia? Yep. Look, there are a lot of things that you should do, a lot of things that people don't or they're unaware of. So in the first instance, if it's uh, you've got to have your insurance policies up to date. So insurance would be building building in contents if it's your home and you're living in it, or just buildings insurance if, if you're the landlord. Um, landlord insurance, what to do to make sure if your tenants' uh, references were fake and they've turned your place into a meth lab and they're trashing it as we speak, having that landlord insurance to uh, protect the value of the asset that you've bought is crucial. Equally to protect you uh, if the tenant stops paying rent. These are all important things to have in play to mitigate against the unexpected. Again, you expect tenants when they go in uh, to be good tenants, but in my experience as a landlord, um, very seldom do letting agents do their job properly when they're vetting, and they certainly don't do their job properly when it comes to the on-site inspections. It certainly could give you multiple examples from my portfolio where that happened and so making sure that you're protected yourself um, against their ineptitude or the behavior of your tenants is absolutely crucial and it, it just drawing on this anecdotally speaking mm. i remember when i bought my first property i had no idea mm. on all of this stuff as probably a lot of listeners didn't or don't now and then you kind of have to figure it out as you go but i was very lucky that i had the mentorship from yourself and the other guys in here in that space once again comes back to the fact that you've got to understand financial education to be able to go and do this stuff effectively if you don't there's a lot of trouble to be had. Yeah, look, couldn't agree with you more. And I appreciate that feedback. It's so, so important to have that team around you that can give you counsel. You don't have to take it. Take what you want, leave what you don't. Um, and it's and it's hard as, a, a, I guess, a regular person with a moral compass to think that, yeah, I've just done a development. I'm going to put a couple of tenants in some of the, some of the units there, sell some, keep some. And 
the tenant thinks it's okay to set fire to the blinds in the kitchen and then try and say, well, that's fair wear and tear. And what planet are you on where that kind of behavior is okay? But you, that's the kind of unexpected behavior that insurance can help you uh, avoid uh, the pain and problems that come from it. And so moving that insurance level forward, you know, again, it's not exciting to talk about insurance or risk. If you've got properties, you need to have income protection, uh, particularly if you've got negatively geared properties where the rent is not covering the cost of servicing the property. So having income protection, if something should happen to you, um, you've got the ability to, 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 dodge the bullet, so to speak, and your income protection can kick in and service the debt where you're getting back on your feet. And one of my clients a number of years ago, GFC, uh, very highly paid in the mining space, mining engineer, very smart lady, had something like 15 or 18 negatively geared investment properties to get a tax down, but then she got made redundant. And, and fortunately for her, she's pretty savvy, got that money working hard through using cash flow on demand, was able to pay it, but she also had income protection in play too. Got you. Um, so mortgage insurance, another one. The, the, the standard things that perhaps go alongside making sure you can sleep at night, especially if you're using using borrowed money. Yeah, another risk that people I see do, you know, they've gone onto a website, done a couple of webinars on build your property empire, you know, buy one, two, three, five, 10, 20 properties and scale it up. And I've seen that done very effectively, but I've seen it done really badly too, where there's something that's called cross collateralization. Oh, all you do is wait for your property to go up in value, take out some of the equity, and then you use that to buy your next one and the next one and probably doubles every seven years. So what have you got to lose? Except if your timing is wrong and probably doesn't double every seven years, and sometimes it can drop quite heavily, is you're gonna find yourself in a situation where you've got to pour more cash in to keep the LVR, the loan to value ratio down. And if they're all cross collateralized, you might have 20 properties, but there's not really any equity in any of them. And it's just that literally no pun intended, house of cards, the whole thing falls in a hole and you've gone from financial freedom in 10 years to actually having a massive debt uh, or possibly bankruptcy on the back of it. And I can give you case studies of that's happening to people too. That's challenging and really sad too. It's called cross collateralization, and I, I guess, yeah, uh, people aren't necessarily aware of that. They should be, but they're not necessarily aware. And the bank's always happy to lend you money when it's good times, but when it's cutting up a bit rough, that's where it becomes becomes a problem. So, putting a ribbon around today, AB, talk about structuring. Well, one more on there actually. I oh, just, just realised I had this conversation with someone last week. Okay. Buying off the plan. Oh yes, how could I forget? So, buying off the plan is where you buy a property before it's built. The idea of you putting your deposit down is it provides the developer with sufficient funding to get the project underway and then at various stages they can get bank finance and the project gets completed. So there's a risk it doesn't get out of the ground in the first instance. Now I'll give you an example of where the property market's imploded and where the property market's done really well and both times the investor's the one that's got shafted. That's the technical term for it too. Okay. So in the first instance they've bought off the plan, let's say 850 grand. There's a decline in the property market and those properties now are selling at the completion of the development for 600. Now you're in a contract to buy that property for 850, but the actual market value of it is 600. So you've got a contract, you've got to pay up and developers will hold you to that contract. Why wouldn't they? Because you signed it and you're locked in for 850 grand. You try and forfeit on that, they'll take you to court. You'll forego your deposit. It's an ugly business, not good. And, and secondly, from a lending perspective, when the bank comes in to look at it, to value the property, to finance it, they're going to go, oh, hang on a minute, these things are going for 600 grand, you've bought yours for 850, which means you've got to put in considerably more deposit in order to maintain that property if you don't want to lose it. So I've seen that happen and, and developers will force you through uh, on that. There was an area years ago where you could do a deposit bond, which is a small amount of money, not non-held, and be able to play with a lot less cash to, to secure a property at this price and hopefully sell it on for a bigger price. That all 
sort of went cactus joined the GFC. But that ability for a developer to to enforce their part of the contract is there. On the other side of the coin, I've seen people that put down a buy off plan for eight fifty. Markets moved up significantly high, and those properties are now worth one, one point one, one point two. And the developer has found a clause to better rip up the contract and say, "Sorry, your contract's not valid anymore. Have your deposit back. Here's your thirty or fifty grand or whatever it was you're putting down, because they know they can on sell that property for a mil one point one uh, in the marketplace today. So you, you took the risk of putting the money in to get it underway, and you're the person ultimately that didn't get the property that you deserved. And that's the danger of buying off plan. Get good legal advice on that one to make sure um, that you've got the, the the contract drawn up in the way that's going to best serve you, because I can guarantee it'll best serve the developer got you got you that's scary i didn't even know that so there you go that's that's awesome to hear ab mm-hmm. as i came back to that point now tying a ribbon around it <laughs> structuring you keep coming back to it structuring mm-hmm. and education what's our, what's your advice to our listeners out there to cap us off structuring is crucial always is and and i guess the idea of structuring we're talking about risk mitigation is to ensure that if you're operating in a certain structure risk is contained in that the bomb proof box the risk is all in there. If it all goes wrong, it blows up, but it stays in the box. Or alternatively, your assets are in the bomb-proof box where if everything else blows up around it, you are actually structured in a way where things are kept nice and tidy for you. And there's no problem that can come up the U-bend, if you will, to, to, to cause you broader drama across other investments or other assets that you have. You'll be very, very reminded of this if, you're in, if you've got loans outstanding, for example, who's the guarantor of that loan? And and, in, and as a consequence, if you're the guarantor of that loan, what are their assets? Because people will go after that in times of difficulty. So extremely important to make sure always uh, that you're structured in exactly the right way. Look at it in one of two ways. Either you want to put the risk in the bomb-proof box or you want to put your assets in the bomb-proof box or both, but make sure they're different boxes. Otherwise, yeah, it gets pretty ugly there. So it's incredibly important to get that structuring advice. And I mean, really, really good quality, not Google, how do I protect my assets? Sitting down with someone that's a professional that's dedicated into that space so that, as I say, you know, expect the best plan for the worst. And if the worst does happen, you're in a situation where your hard work and endeavor is all protected and ring fenced and, and the misdemeanor that you had over here. And this doesn't mean to say you're not accountable, but the misdemeanor you've had over here, the poor decision you made here, doesn't have the ability to sink the mothership. Well, AB, let's hope that even if we can positively influence one listener on this with, with our advice today. So on that note, thank you very much. It's been a great episode. Can't advocate it enough. You know, we, as we started off, the biggest risk of all in life is the one you don't know about. By getting educated, and hopefully there's some value in what we've just shared here, um, you start to learn to put that risk in the bomb-proof box so it can't, can't do you any damage. But it does take education to do that. Best investment you ever make. It's not in a property. It's not in shares. It's in your education to know what to do and to make sure that what happens is what you expect. Prepare for the worst expect the best it'll drop in the middle and if you're educated it'll always drop in the middle and you'll be safe great way to finish ab thanks very much absolute pleasure anytime there you have it guys make sure you give us a review and a rating and we'll look forward to hosting you next week